We got uh, we got local APD officer Justin Barry hopped on the pedicab, man. I'm so happy to have you, man. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor. Like I said, just you know, I'm here on my own personal capacity today, but it's it's an honor to be here, bud. No, thank you. It's an honor to have you. I think it's really good to talk to like as many members of the community as possible to really get a broad understanding of what's like what's happening locally, nationally, et cetera, all that stuff. Um, but you were just telling me a really interesting story before we aired, so let's let's uh, add to that. Yeah, that, that's why I was wondering, like, if you if you ever like roll out with some regulators by Warren G with, <laughs> with your with your pedicab posse, because I totally would start my whole day off that way every day. But yeah, I mean, we you know we we're, were just talking about some of the, the community stuff that we've done, and you know, I, I worked on an operation years ago to help clean up an area near Fourth and Sabine where we had a bunch of you know drug activity or some robberies, violent crimes. Um, I know it's an area that, that your community in the pedicab world cycled a When lot. I first started, we used to see that shit all the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I know the robberies were big over there, and it was a big thing. And actually, one of the pedicab companies actually, like, offered up to let us use one of their pedicabs to do a jump out. <laughs> so, like, this dope deal goes down, and, like, we literally, like, blankets on us, and we just bail out. And like, dude, they had no idea what like, they were just like, what? Because they just never, they literally never saw it coming, man. It was, it was, it was probably one of the cooler moments of my career. That was a cool moment, dude. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this one lady was like, "Them hoes came out the sky." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like, um, so with this whole defund stuff, man. Like, you guys have always been like good to us. I've always, you guys have always been really, really cool with us. Um, and um. You know, I think that, like, your relationship with um, law enforcement has to do with, like, personal experiences. Yeah. And so, like, I went to Louisville, Kentucky a while ago, and I did the Kentucky Derby in Louisville. And the cops were fucking assholes. <laughs> like, they were dicks. Like, they were telling us, like, that we couldn't go on the sidewalk. And then the, the other cops said we had to be on the street. And then, like, another cop said we didn't, we shouldn't even, we're not even supposed to be here. And people were trying to give us tickets for, like, no reason. Like, it was a mess and so like if i was a pedicabber in louisville kentucky i might have a different attitude about law enforcement versus being a pedicab driver here so i think that like um the way things happen locally has to really do a lot with how you feel about policing it's, it's because we don't have a nationalized police force in this country it's because we have local policing <clears throat> and it's because of that local policing that you get to develop better relationships with people you get to have more um, leeway and you're not dealing with a national policy instead you're dealing with a lot of influence from that grassroots to that local level uh, that I think that's why you see the difference. You know, when I was in college, I'll never forget this moment. When I was in college, uh, I got pulled over one time um, going home from college to home, and uh, they said that, that I didn't stop long enough at the stoplight. And I was like, I took my, my ticket and did my defensive driving. Well, when I was in the police academy, when we're, we're reading through all the statutes as part of what you do when you go to the police academy, it says that the definition of stopping is comes to a full cessation of movement. Yeah. Sit, there's not a time limit how, how long you have to be stopped at the stop sign. It's just you have to come to a full, complete stop, like no forward momentum, right? And I remember sitting there, and I was like, I was like, you, you got to be kidding me! I was so angry and frustrated. I was like, I was like, that dude straight up was like misled me. He, he lied to me. You know, I should not have gotten that. And I remember sitting there, like, like I, I was legitimately angry in that moment when I realized what those definitions of some of those offenses were. But I think some of that comes to just training too. Like we here in Austin, for the longest time, have been very fortunate to have a lot of access to good training. Our police academy has always been one of the longest in the nation. 
Um, so we, we, we've right. always had a pretty good pretty good thing here. So I got a couple questions, though. So first thing is, like, if you're a person and a civilian who gets stopped by a cop for some something stupid like that, how do you, like, communicate to the officer, and how do you best fight that? Yeah, I, I think that's the problem where we as a society fail the most. We don't teach civics anymore. There, there is a reason we have a judicial branch of government, and that's where you get to air your grievances out okay. to a party that's not there. So, so when you, if you're in that moment, right? So an officer pulls you over and you're unhappy or like, Hey, I disagree with this or whatever. You can one, always ask for a supervisor. You can always ask for a supervisor to the scene. Say, Hey, I'd like to speak to your supervisor. Anyone, you can do that. Um, but secondly is, is it's not always the, the, it's not always the best environment to have an argument or, or a confrontation, right? And so that's where you can always go through internal affairs if you feel like there was a wrongdoing, or you can wait and contest your ticket and go to court. Which I think is the there. best approach, because I've had that happen to me a few times where I'm just like, you know what? Hey, be polite and uh, go, I mean, depending on how like expensive it is, like, well, getting a lawyer sucks. You don't want to do that, but like either be polite, get a lawyer, be polite, and um, go speak to a, um, a prosecutor about what happened yeah. and tell them what's going on and see what the... Um, what the deal or the situation is, but I think that like yeah, people aren't really taught how to like communicate with police officers or people in, in like certain communities, like specifically like you know the black community, right? From what I'm hearing, like on TV and from other people that I've like had as guests, they are like, well, um, you know, if I try, like they they might be scared to even have that discussion because they're afraid of like getting like you know brutalized or attacked or shot by some officer who's not trained or they had a bad day or the mental health is like not. You know, they're not as invested in, like, positive mental health as they could be with some of these, like, academies or some of the, the departments or whatnot. So, like, how do you, like, effectively, like, if I'm stopped at a, let's say, like, for your example, right? Like, I'm stopped at a, I stop at a stop sign for, like, a second. I, I seceded movement, right? Yeah. I do what I'm supposed to do. But a cop pulls me over because I wasn't stopped for two seconds. For, like, I didn't stop for right. more than that. Like, what can I say to that? What should I say as somebody who gets pulled over to that to that cop? Yeah, uh, you know, you can... If you, I, like, like, let's role play. If I'm the cop and, um... You know, I, I'm the cop, and I pull you over. Okay. Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? No, why did I, why'd you pull me over? You didn't um, come. You, you were supposed to stop at a stop sign for um, X amount of time, and you, you didn't stop at the stop sign for the required amount. So I'm, I'm going to write what's, you. What's the required amount of time? The required amount of time is uh, three seconds. Yeah. Yo, my bad. It, 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 three seconds. You know, so now we can start getting into an argument, right? If that was the case, I, I would just be like, like, can I speak to your supervisor about that? And I was like, no, no offense to you. With all respect, I think you may be mis mistaken on this. And, you know, but I don't want to get in an argument with you, but I, I would like to speak to your supervisor, please. Okay, and then what would the cop have to do? Call a supervisor. They have to do it immediately, right? Yeah. Okay. As long as it's seen safe, right? So as long as it's seen safe, like if you're, if I'm like throwing my arms about and I'm making movements in my car, like I'm digging into my seat, like, oh, yeah, you start yelling, they're going to wait a second to make sure it's safe for them to call their supervisors. But if you just stay calm like you and I are doing now, say, I'd just like to speak to your supervisor, they're going to call their supervisor immediately. Okay. Uh, well, that, that's good to know. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you feel like you're being pulled over for something that you didn't do, mm -hmm. can I please speak to a supervisor? Yeah. I want to speak to a supervisor, please. Okay. And you might have to wait because they might be busy on another call or something else, but they'll come to the scene up there. I think generally speaking, if you're like polite and you're like, hey, thanks for doing what you're doing and keeping us safe, but um, I would like to speak to your supervisor about this. I think there might be a misunderstanding. Like, I yeah. think usually it works out, but... I don't know. Maybe some people who like don't look like me might feel differently. So I think like there's got to be a way to communicate that to other people aside from myself, right? Yeah, and I think that's where I think that's where we as a society, you know, have been trying to answer is how do we have this conversation, right? How do we have this conversation of improving police and race relations? How do we deal with the past of policing 
and how do we go forward into the modern days and into the future with policing? And I, I think that's it, it's got to be a two-way street. It's got to be a two-way conversation. You know, there's a there's a part on us as civilians in the community that we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way, just as the same way as we need our police officers to conduct themselves in a certain way. But if all we're doing is saying the police have to do this, but I can do whatever I want to do, it doesn't make for a balance. You don't get that harmony in, in, a, in a civilized society. So I think that's it's a two-way street uh, as we make these improvements going forward. I agree. I think that's important. Um, I think that the more policing is in control of local municipalities, the easier it is to make reforms to these departments. I, th I think a lot of it really starts with the intake. Who are we hiring? To? That's the beauty with having a, a, a local police department rather than a nationalized police force is, is you get to have some say and impact of who are we recruiting and who are we hiring, right? And then, it, then the next stage is the training. So you can make all these changes you want, but if we start making sure that we are put ourselves in a position where we have the ability to to attract, hire, and recruit the best officers. Like when I was hired on 14 years ago, I was one of about, I think it was like 2,000 applicants trying yeah. to get 100 spots. Today we can't even fill a lot of our classes. You know, we had one class, we couldn't even get 63 cadets in there. It well, why? It's because no one wants to come to this profession anymore. We've done such a great job as a society demonizing the policing profession and then turn around and wonder why well, why can't we hire people that but we it, want to it be could officers. also i think be because some of these standards for hiring are a little bit outdated there are some yeah i do think i do think that we need to make some changes on some of our hiring standards like, for sure like the but, marijuana stuff i had talked to dennis ferris about this yeah and i don't think that they should be drug testing police officers for weed I think that's a really, I think that's really like an outdated dinosaur way of doing things. And I'm not saying that you should be allowed to be high on the job, right. but this drug stays in your system for 30 days. Um, I don't know enough about how long marijuana stays in your system. I don't, just being honest with you. But I do think we have to have some internal standards for sure. I mean, just to make sure people aren't high on the job or any residual but, stuff. But also, you know, if you start drug testing for marijuana, like, and you want to put a substance into your body, you're probably more likely to drink alcohol or put some pills or take some prescription meds or do God knows what if you have some mental health issues. And, well, they you know, screen for all of that. Yeah, so. but it's but that doesn't stay in your system as long. No, but they screen for it all. Sure, but it doesn't stay in your system as much. So it's a lot easier to um, finagle your way out of that to, if you're doing coke versus if you're smoking weed because that's in your system for two days. Weed's in your system for 30. You see that there's... I'm not an expert in how but I But I know, but I, I, mean, I know about that stuff just from, yeah. like, basic science and whatnot, yeah. right? Um, and I also think that, like, maybe I'm wrong, but when you're a police officer, you're generally dealing with people on their worst days, right? Oh, you always, you're, for All the, the most time, part, yeah. you are, yeah. And that's one of the wake-up calls, right? Everyone that comes in this job, I, I was the same way. You have these big, grandiose ideas that you're going to help people out because that's what you want to do. It's why you get into this profession. And But then you realize the bulk of what you're doing is you're interacting people with people on some of their worst days and in their worst moments. You know, there's been some people out here that I've seen, and you probably see them too, some of our homeless community that, that are very mean drunks. Um, but when they're sober, they're the nicest people, you know, and but I'm usually interacting with them when they're having a rough moment rather than their good moments. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. We, we are primarily, the majority of what we do is, is on people's bad Right, days. and then that being said, you're demonized by almost everybody because everyone sees you on their worst day, right? And you're super stressed out. Um, I think that if you allow, like, somebody to, if you allow you know, your departments to be able to, you know, take in a plant that generally speaking has healing and meditative effects on people that helps to improve mental clarity and creativity done, you know, intelligently, 
you could probably like get rid of a lot of the mental health issues or at least diminish some of those mental health issues that police officers are facing because of the stress of the job. You know, I think it would be helping. I think like a lot, like not drug testing for marijuana would probably like help the mental health of a lot of our police officers and make people better, more understanding cops, among other things. But I think that's something that you could also... Well, you will find a lot of officers that don't want to do that for other various reasons. I, I'm just being honest with you. I, I know that's, that's a, a touchy issue in the profession because we talk about it a lot. You know, do we support legalization of marijuana? Do we stay out of it? What do we do with it? Because we see different sides of it. Like we see the human trafficking side of it. We see the money laundering side. Of it. So we see some of the other sure, sides of it, but it's only, you only get that because it's illegal. If, it, if that's legal, it'd be the less nefarious influences are involved in that. Yeah. Like I said, I think that's not my area of expertise. No, I understand. Stuff, I'm just saying this is my, this is my perspective on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, that that's just, that's how I look at it. And I also think that we have a huge shortage of officers. Like that's a fact. We got we a shortage of police officers. So why are you creating a barrier to entry when we not only have a shortage of police officers, but we have spikes in crime. We have certain, certain cities are having nineties era crime epidemics. It makes no sense to create a barrier to entry on something as silly as marijuana. And at the point in time that we are in right now. No, I, I agree. I think if someone has some past marijuana usage or some past, you know, involvement with it i think you should look at how long has it been since their last arrest or conviction for a marijuana case versus that because i always tell people some of the best officers you'll ever meet are officers that understand that this world is shades of gray and what do i mean by that officers that have gotten a little bit of trouble in their past usually have a better job of having empathy and relating to the people that they're working with when they use that their their discretion to go about conducting their duties so i think it's 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 a good to not always have the most polished person in their life to say oh this polished person is going to be our perfect officer because they can't relate to the everyday person that they're interacting yeah with. it's like the kid who wants to be president all his life you don't want that kid to be president you know well, uh, does yeah. that make sense like the kid who like wanted to be president all through like eighth grade and, and high school it's like, you don't want that kid to be a public official that kid can't relate to you anybody. need life experience and that's why yeah. life experience i think is very crucial to this profession for sure but let me ask you a question though right um because we were talking about like nationalizing the dangers of nationalizing a police force and the importance yeah. of like local involvement and whatnot right yeah. does the city of austin have the ability or does the austin police department have the ability to um no longer um penalize officers for marijuana use um, under the standards of policing being local right now like do they have that ability or that authority to do that yeah, I mean, it's an administrative uh, uh, authority, but there's still the federal law. So, like, we still are responsible for, you know, local laws, state laws, and federal laws. And so, because maybe the city of Austin may be more laxed on their view on it, there's still a state law and a federal law that we still have to abide by. So, because marijuana is federally illegal, you cannot, um, you cannot like, say it's okay to smoke marijuana. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but do, the, do departments have to drug test for that substance? Are they? I'm, I'm just asking you a question because you ran. You know, you ran for state office. You're yeah. heavily involved in your in your department. I think that, you know, with this with this whole policing stuff, you need to have like really common sense, comprehensive reforms that strengthen departments and restore community trust in these um, departments, and also make cops more empathetic to people in the community, so people feel protected by law enforcement. Because yeah. if you don't, you're going to create a nationalized police force, which nobody wants. Yeah. Well, and it, we definitely don't want a national police force. I know I don't want to work for one. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people that push for these, we want a nationalized standard of this and nationalize that. When you start going that pathway of nationalizing your policing, you, it's very harder to have your say or have your voice heard and listened at a local level. Yes. So I think it's very important that 
people realize that when you go down that mm. pathway of starting to nationalize your entire police, and you're, you're actually going to have more issues down the road that, that you're not. Well, it disenfranchises about. communities. It does. That's literally how you disenfranchise a community when you don't let people have a say in terms of how they want their neighborhood to be protected. Yeah. You know, not to mention like the crime that's going to come with it. And then when <clears> you see epidemics in crime, it um, first of all, it'll ultimately create a backlash where they just put more money into policing. Nobody cares how that money is spent because they're tired of the crime. And if these local departments get bled out of money or people don't want to join these local departments and these local departments are no longer able to like sustain themselves, then you're more likely to succumb to a nationalized standard, which is going to do the exact opposite of what these activists want. Yeah, and that's the thing. You create that self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy, right? Um, and, and I think that's why it's important to make sure you have those open lines of communications with your policymakers. But at the same time, don't be naive enough to block out everyone else in the community's point of view and their feelings and perspective as well because that's what we're seeing here in austin we're seeing one small very small micro segment of our community dictating policy for the vast majority of the overall community and i think that's why it's very important when people go out there and say i'm here on behalf of the community my question is well which community are you referring to because it's not the nine hundred thousand residents of austin yeah um, and so I, I think it's very important that that we bring in a good cross-section of the community to actually have these from the business well, sector, from various parts of town, from the service industry, everybody. Yes, you got to talk to everybody and let people know. Yes. And I think there's got to be a better way that the APD should interact with people on better days. Like you should have APD like interacting with like um, the homeless, even when they're doing nothing wrong, just like, like hang out with them, like give them food or something like that. So, you know what I mean? So like here's, just, just, so here's the thing we've done it. Like when I worked down on sixth street, I used to do that all the time. Do you, do you remember that guy? Um, he used to be really blind, and he used to like shuffle across the street. He would always block traffic up. It was probably about maybe eight, nine years ago. Well, he was he was blind. As, he was blind as a bat, and you know, and I would talk to him a lot. You know, I got to build a rapport with him because he couldn't see. He'd swing at you from time to time. Oh, and because he just he was he would get robbed or he'd get assaulted. Oh but, my god! Yeah. But he could never report his crimes because no one knew. But you would hear through the grapevine from the other other people from the homeless community would say, "Oh yeah, so and so robbed him the other day, or this or that." And it was very heartbreaking to see that, but I used to give him food all the time. We just don't advertise that stuff. And, and a lot of officers that you come across are very principled people. They're not going to go say, everyone stop, look at me, I'm giving this homeless guy food. They're not well, going to draw attention Well, I don't think you should do that. that. That's not, not what I think you should do. But I think that like when you're in, in the community, you're just like interacting with them, not as a cop, just like as a human being in the community, but you just have your uniform on. Like You'll just get people in the community to see you differently. Well, well, if I'm wearing the uniform, make- well, if I'm wearing the uniform, I don't get it just act as though a regular civilian you, you still are when you're wearing your uniform you gotta you're, act you're like a cop right well, you're representing the city in that moment so you, you you're 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 now in a different capacity but but i see what the point you're trying to make is and i see that but yes no i see a lot of officers do go out and talk to them the problem we have now is officers are starting to become a little bit more afraid that if they say something and offend someone in the community well they're going to go file an anonymous complaint and they're going to get in trouble so it's it's almost kind of hard for it's like an a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Have yeah, an honest yeah. conversation to like humanize themselves because if they misstep or they misspeak, now they're worried about getting disciplined because of they 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 brought discredit upon the department or they were rude or some type of complaint because someone didn't like their opinion. No, or and what I they had to say. okay, and I get that. Um, I, I totally understand that. You know, one of the things I think that could be done maybe is like you find like prominent like black owned businesses in Austin and just have like cops visit those spots and just tip super well right and do and you do that like consistently and all of a sudden they know who you are and then like when these discussions come out now you got the business community in these like black neighborhoods that are like going to kind of have your back or come you like be able to cooperatively work with other members of the community to find like 
better, more comprehensive, more actionable ways to like positively reform the department versus like what the DSA or the Chaz Moores or the Chris Harris's want to do. Do you know yeah. what I mean? No, I do. And, and I think a lot of officers, we do, we do do that. It's just, again, like I said, we don't publicize it. So you don't ever hear about those things. And, and, and I'll tell you this, talking with a lot of our officers, they, they don't want to be having to do things just because of a person's race. I don't want to have to go visit a business just because of their race. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to do that. that. Because most officers, they just want to come here, do their job, and keep the overall community safe regardless of their whatever, their, their race, their gender, their creed, their, their sexuality. They don't, want to, they don't want to get in all the, the social justice checkboxes. They just want to come here and just do their job and keep their community safe. And so I think a lot of times is as us putting that barrier on them, we're, we're actually asking our officers to to act upon someone's race, which is the last thing they yeah, want to do. That, that, and I, I'm glad that that's brought to light. Yeah, I, I, they, they don't want to do it. That's and why I, I there's think such that, a big backlash with this critical race theory that's being pushed now at the department. Well, the problem with this critical race theory is, um, A, it's who's teaching it. Yeah. And B, it's who is in charge of our administration and see everything that happened with COVID and the threat of China. Um, and when you, and other countries implementing these COVID lockdown rules, you, even I've been seeing videos of like people getting their asses kicked by cops in other countries, even in like blue cities for like not wearing masks, not social distancing, yeah. doing all, all this type of stuff. And the reason that didn't really happen so much in America is because we have a constitution and we have freedoms and we have free speech and we have these unalienable rights that don't happen in other countries. And, um, you know, seeing what happened in COVID really made me appreciate living in America a lot more than I ever have um, in the past. And I think that, like, you have a political climate where a lot of people are being told to, like, kind of hate America. And then you have, like, our president, sorry if I'm ranting, they didn't even tweet about D-Day, right? Like, that's bad. Kamala Harris is talking about, hey, enjoy the long weekend on Memorial Day. Right yeah. when that holiday was basically founded upon by freed slaves um, to help preserve the Union during the Civil War, anyway. Yeah. Right, so like when you have that going on, you know what I mean, and you have like this level of like activism being taught in the schools, and you can't really exercise dissenting thought is, is what it seems like when it comes to education and whatnot. Right, like you teach this critical race theory stuff, like it's not going to do anything to address racism. All it's going to do is is convince people to hate america well you know my my biggest issue with with the critical race theory stuff is that by design it creates division by design it promotes racism in the name of equity by design it 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 brings about inequality and those are the issues that i i have problems with is you know i go out here and i say i'm i'm for making sure people are treated equally and fairly that doesn't mean you're going to get an equal outcome in life it doesn't mean but it means i'm going to have love tolerance in my life to show you the respect you as a human being are deserved but what decisions you make in your life will dictate the outcomes that come later on i can't control everything i grew up very poor growing up you know i remember i got in a, a big fight with my mom when i was a little kid because i wanted those pumps you remember those little pump shoes that the little yeah yeah the reebok yeah, i wanted the pumps and and so my mom we went to pay less pay less doesn't sell pumps i, I threw the biggest fit i was such a little brat you know and my mom was a single mom, and, you know, she didn't have much money. And we got in a big fight. And, and I remember, like, later that evening, my mom was crying. I went into the room, and she was crying. And I realized I was, like, kind of a jerk about it. Um, but that that's the, the perspective and lens that I come from. And so I've made it a point to work very hard, to have a strong work ethic, and, and to, you know, I grew up, like, if you need money, go get a job. If you need more money, get a second job or work overtime. I worked three jobs at one point while in college just to just to make ends meet, you know. 
and, and I think people don't don't we need to get back to promoting work ethic and promoting you know sacrifice i don't maybe i don't go to the bar tonight because i got to pick up an extra no shift. that that's true and i understand that but we also got to do a better job of communicating financial opportunities and and um abilities to generate passive income so that you see the yes. fruits of your labor because if you're working three jobs and you don't have shit and you've been doing that for years and years you're not going to want to do that anymore so no. you have to like you Seek have to also other communicate opportunities. um opportunities you have to communicate financial literacy you have to start um teaching people about Bitcoin and blockchain cities have to start using that. Yeah. You have to start teaching that so people can actually see benefit to what they're doing. Cause if you don't, then that's how we, you create co a communist revolution and nobody fucking wants that yeah, either. You that's know? why, you know, I talk a lot with, you know, this comes from my experience. I talk a lot about recidivism reduction and because I, I think that's the pathway forward to working on a lot of these police reform issues is how do we prevent that next interaction with law enforcement? They, they made a mistake. They got picked up. Maybe they got sent to prison. How do we stop it the next time? Right? Well, talking to a lot of these drug dealers over the years, when I used to do the undercover work downtown, you, I quickly realized they're not bad people. They are not bad people. A lot of them were making bad decisions or bad choices by, by where they came from in their life, because that may be all they've yeah. known. Or they may have gotten harder sentences compared to somebody else because of where they lived in the neighborhood they were in and who the judge was and all that shit. Like, all that stuff could have also happened too, man. It's like, possible, yeah. yeah but, but when you talk to them and you ask them, and I would always tell them, like, I don't judge you. Yeah. They'd look at me like, what? I, go, I don't judge you. I go, I go, let me tell you why. I go, I go, how many times have you been to prison? Like two or three times, all right? How many kids do you have? One to three, all right? I was like, so I get it. You're... Working three jobs at McDonald's isn't going to pay the bills. I get this because, as I told you before, I've worked three jobs before. I know how hard that is. Yeah. And so one thing I tell them, though, but they're very smart. Like They have, they understand supply and demand. They're, they're very street savvy. They, they've got a lot of the raw talent needed to be good salespeople or whatever. And I tell, and I tell them, nothing, says, nothing prohibits you. Like, you may not be able to go work for Michael Dell after this at, at, at a Fortune 500 company because of your felony conviction. But nothing says you can't learn about entrepreneurship and be your own boss because you have the raw talent. Not always encourage them. Check out books when you go to prison. Check this out. Because I told go, I know you're going to come back out here to the street again. Like It's the reality of things. Nothing says start, start saving money aside. Get some money saved up. Start you a, you know, try to find a way to, to start a franchise or something else. And then you can bring your homeboys in with you. And yeah. then you can start teaching them stuff. Because some of these people out there that, that I've met are, are very nice people. They were just doing very bad. They were doing things that are not socially acceptable. Um, and... I think that's the pathway forward is through recidivism reduction. How do we set people up for success post-incarceration? Well, you also have to make it easier for people to start small businesses, too. Yes. And I think that what happened with COVID is it was literally a war on small businesses. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of small businesses, 40% black-owned businesses were done within two months of COVID, right? But BLM wasn't too. marching about that, right? But what I'm saying, though, is that, like, if you have to make it easier – to create small businesses, you have to lower like ta you have to lower these corporate taxes. You yes. have to lower the taxes, the taxes for people starting companies. You gotta um, create different minimum wage requirements depending on the size of the business. You have to do all that stuff, yes. and it's not fair, and it may not be f fully equitable. But the more businesses that you create, the more opportunities you create for people. The, the easier it is for somebody who may have had like some felonies or some problems to find something that they're good at. Yes, which. And, and you know, and, and one thing when, when when I've talked to people before, as I go talk about these recidivism reduction efforts, is you'll find some companies that have hired um, uh, some of the formerly incarcerated people or ex-felons. They said they're some of the most loyal employees they have because they realize what's at stake that that there's not a lot of those opportunities out there, I, and they have a great workforce. I used to be a personal it. trainer um, in New York City when yeah. I first got out of college. And like half people that I worked with were ex-cons, yeah. And a whole bunch of these ex-cons were murdering it. Like they were like they were 
doing like 30, 40 sessions a week, making like six figures. Like they were mm-hmm. killing it. They have a work ethic because they understand it, what it, it's yeah. like to be poor and what it's like to finally have earned something through the sacrifice, through hard work. It's just they've been able to redirect their energy, focus, and time on a different product. Yeah, you also got to like teach financial literacy in yes. black neighborhoods too, I think. Because if you look well, at for some, everybody, I mean, well, that's for everybody. No, needs but, to but, learn but it, like though. you got but I like, look at some of these Federal Reserve numbers and, um, there's like 50% less stock market participation overall compared to black and white Americans. I think a lot of people don't understand it. I, yeah, I don't so that's know what so I'm much saying that's, saying that's that racial. Gotta, I think that's more socioeconomic. Right, but a lot yeah. of but because of redlining and all this shit, like you have more black people that live in certain areas because of stuff that happened that we had nothing to do with, but it Correct. still happened. So let's fix it and create a better meritocracy <laughs> system. And I think that if you start teaching financial investing in communities that have a little bit less access to that type of knowledge, you could bridge a lot of these gaps and a lot of these riots, a lot of the civil unrest, a lot of the stuff that's happening, which could cause disastrous effects down the road, could get mitigated before they mushroom. That's what I'm. Right. That's what. But I a think, lot of it you know? is you got to free up their income, right? I mean, if you're working, you know, a starting, you know, wage job, you're not going to have enough spare cash on hand to invest at, yeah, an, at at a level that will actually give you the return needed. Maybe. But what I think you can do, though. What I think you can do is, how do we find a way to not tax people as highly so they have more liquid cash on hand? Sure, sure, And I sure. think that's where we really look is, how do we free up cash people so they can make those choices and decisions? Because as it stands right now, the cost of living here in Austin is so high sure. that, that they, where's your free money going? Okay. See, the time you get free money, the government's coming in and it's like, oh, more right, money. Just that. I understand all that. And I also know Biden's trying to hire 80, 87 IRS agents and all this <laughs> shit, which is... Yeah, but anyway, that, that's not where we're going with that. But what I'm saying, though, is that, like, okay, I get where you're coming from, and that makes sense, but when, their kids might be in a different situation, right? Like, yeah. if your 17-year-old son has a part-time job at, like, Foot Locker, McDonald's, or whatever store yeah. they're making, right, or at a coffee shop, or doing whatever it is they're doing, I mean, listen, yeah, you have to contribute and help the family a little bit, yeah. but a child is going to have a lot more disposable income than an adult. Even if you're living in the same house and the, and the adult is struggling, you could tell the child to invest whatever they have into um, yes. into certain stocks, into cryptocurrency, into whatever it is they're investing in. Yep. You teach the child about that, all of a sudden now the child has a little nest egg 10 yes. years from now, you slowly start to bridge these gaps. Yes, and I, and I think that's that that right there I think is a sound plan is teaching because you are right because the, the younger generation, their youth, the kids do have more, they they have, have more time. They have more time. And to, they know, what, and they know what's going on. And when you have a, a mindset of, of saying, hey, man, I if I do X, Y, and Z, I can generate passive income. You're going to be more motivated to work harder and make more money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're like, oh, I can buy this dip now instead yeah. of buying shoes. Like yeah. So it, it just it, it changes the game tremendously. Another thing I think they should do too is for like pro athletes – they should require every like rookie, every NBA rookie or NFL rookie, to spend 200 hours with a like financial analyst from like a bank or an investing company during their ro- no no 200 <laughs> hours individually with a, f- a specific financial analyst. Yeah. Um, that mentors you and teaches you about like the stock market, the economy, how to start businesses, how to like don't buy do that attaches. Lambo. <laughs> Pretty much, yes, yes, yes. Because if you start doing that, all of a sudden it's like you can restructure the concept of wealth in America in a generation. Yeah. Just by doing that, like it's so. Well, much- it even opens up the pathway of investing back in the community that you came from. Yes, and finding yes. other entrepreneurs in your community and be that that seed funder. Hence, for them. restructuring well. Like mm-hmm. I think that that's something that we we're at we're at a point now where we are tolerant enough as a society where that can work. Like it, you know, they had like Black Wall Streets and all that stuff in like 1912, like way back in the day, mm-hmm. in 19, like the early 19 teens, yep. and that was getting burnt down by like crazy white vigilantes who were super racist. But we're a lot more tolerant, a lot more um, accepting now than we were 100 years ago. Correct. I think that we could revisit some of these things, and it could really, um, 
make like it can really change things leaps and bounds and i think that that's got to be something everyone's got to be like nurturing and i think of people on the conservative side i pitch this to conservatives all the time they're like they are down with this right i think that's a good well, idea because it's about setting people up for success right and, and i think that's the lens i know that i look from when i look at policy is is this policy going to set them up for success in life or not like are we going to allow them that to, to utilize their their keep their in the, utilize their freedoms to better their life or do we keep holding them down with more restrictions and things like that that keep them from moving up in the world that they want to move up into? Yeah. Because let people control their own destiny, right? So uh, that that's something that I believe in. Is, is When we look at the lens of policy is, is this policy going to set people up for success or is it going to keep them in failure? No, dude, I fully agree. Um, did you hear about Michigan's new little law about requiring blue belts for police officers? Wait, what? No, this is a This uh, Michigan State Legislator um, proposed something to um, – require all police officers to have blue belts in their jersey before they like are on the force really yeah how many years would that take i think like a couple i think like you could probably get a blue belt in like two years right or if you've been training before you you know it could happen sooner but i do think that like um and i've said this numerous times i think that um i know that save Austin now they got this push to restore funding to correct and stuff yep. it's important because of all the stuff we're talking about right yes. but i think that um especially in a place like austin you got to sell this and, you know, I want to be able to sell this. And I think that one of the ways to sell this is to, like, comprehensively show what that money is going to go towards. And I think that one of the things that I think that that money needs to go towards is, A, hiring more officers, mm-hmm. right? And, B, making sure that they are trained properly to, like, mitigate confrontational situations while they keep their cool while, without hurting the suspect so there's less complaints against them and whatnot and all that stuff, right? And I think that, like, requiring like a blue belt in jujitsu or some kind of proficiency in a martial art or consistent training in a mar- like in a combat based martial art mm-hmm. is something that should be mandated for a police for not every police department because I don't think things should be nationalized. But I think for what we have in Austin, that should be mandated. So we actually did. We actually trained in Krav Maga when I was in the police academy. I mean, that was one of our things is that, that we had regular training yeah, in it. Yeah, but Krav Maga and, Krav Maga and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu are not. They, they are different. I know there's a switch going more towards Jiu-Jitsu is yeah. kind of the trend now. But just that. But there's been a martial arts standard out there, that at least in a lot of the trainings. The, we call it as defensive tactics training. So there, we do have a component of it. But I think to say you have to have a certain blue belt, certain rank, I think might be going a little too far. But but having regular training in the proficiency of defensive tactics, I have no qualms with that at all. But what a lot of people don't realize is when they talk about the money of the department, the vast majority of that funding was salaries. That's why when they took that that all that money away, they also took away 150 positions. And then they, they decouple to take away more money and decouple to take away more money. And so that's really what's going on. So the bulk of the, the, the salary, the bulk of the budget of the department is actual salary. It's, it's, it's officers' bodies in there. It's not for programs or things like that. It's the staffing is really where okay. it goes to. But is there any way um, – and I had, a co- I had a black belt come on a while ago, yeah. right, who was an ex-cop, and he was talking about, like, how they use these, like, old, outdated methods. And he mentioned, like, Krav Maga and, like, all the spear stuff. Yeah. It's, like, you know, it's, it's old and outdated. There's a lot of, like, bureaucratic stuff and a lot of, like, lawyers and legal analysts that have their hands tied and they, they're getting, like, you know, they, they're still getting compensated money from all that stuff for whatever the reason is. Um but he, you know, he's got a black belt in jujitsu, and I, you know, when you require um, a grappling proficiency in a grappling-based martial art, like you're able to, you're able to better control a suspect that's aggressive, that's being extremely aggressive mm-hmm. towards you. Because did you wrestle at all? Or uh, any- I actually did taekwondo. I actually right, had a black yeah. belt in taekwondo. Okay. So, <laughs> so my, my parents owned a taekwondo school. Nice, cool, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
But like you know people that like wrestled or boxed or did like a combat sport like that. Like when you're like sparring and you're going live, like people are going hard against you constantly. Yeah. Right? So if you're able to like hold side control against a resisting suspect or hold a scarf hold and they can't move, you're a lot easier to control able you're able to a lot more easy easily control a uh, a suspect or somebody combative without actually hurting them or without you getting yourself hurt. You're less likely to use your weapon. You're less likely to see all these riots and all this stuff that's happening as a backlash of it. I think that for the safety of the department and for the safety of the officers it's something that should be required. Like, I think that you should have to um, train in a combat sport two to three times a week um, in order as a condition to be an officer. And I think another thing that that does, too, is it gets you involved in the community because as a cop, you're seeing people on their worst days constantly, right? So if you're training, like, twice, you know, two, three times a week at an actual gym, people are going to – you're going to see people in a much different light, and people are also going to be really happy to see you because there's cops in my gym, right? You're always wanting to help them. Because, like, dude, that's a cop. We got to make sure they're good at their job. Let me give this guy attention. Let me spend time with him. Let me talk to him. Let me roll with this guy. And then you see the community in a much better light, man. That's my... But but look at it from this point. Not everyone lives the same lifestyle. You'll have officers that have two, three, four kids that this kid's got to go to ballet. This kid's got basketball practice. Now, this where where is your free time as a parent now? And that's what people don't realize. As a young single cop coming in, yeah, you probably got time to go do that. So then require, that, then require that for all the new cops coming in right now. Require for every new cop that graduates from academy, require for all the new cops. Well, what if what if they have kids and families already? And that's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying is, like, to put these blanket things out there, I think now what we can do is provide through like either incentive pay because we give incentive pay for you to learn ASL. We will give you incentive pay if you speak a, a different language. There are things that we'll do if you're willing to be proactive in doing these things. Then then we can help okay. compensate you on some of this. Then stuff. give incentive pay if they for every time you get a blue belt or a purple belt or a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, yeah. they should be giving incentive pays for every officer that does that, and it no should be substantial. Like they got to do that. Like you need. A, a better, more well-trained police force. You yeah. have to, man. Like that's. I think that's something that. And I think that. I think that when you say, "Hey, we're going to restructure the money to offer incentives um, for our officers to be better trained in a combat sport where they're less likely to have to shoot somebody and do all that stuff," like you're going to be a lot more able to sell restoring funding than just saying, "Hey, things are unsafe. We need funding." That's right. that, you know, like that's what well, I think. Well, I, I, I think you know, I've been doing this for a while. I, I quite frankly think where we need to really invest our training is, is in communications classes. That's where I think we should really start because the bulk of what I do, the odds of me getting in a use of force situation on my day-to-day job is, is low. Me getting in a shooting is extremely low. But me getting in a rudeness complaint is very high. And so a lot of it is is really learning how to communicate with people because we don't really get a lot of training in how to communicate with someone. Like, like knowing how do I – how do I get my message as an officer to you, the citizen? And how do I receive the information from the citizen as an officer? So having communications trainings in, in like, I'm not talking about like this, oh, we have to do this or that, but like actual like learning how people speak, learning how people receive information and being able to identify how this person's speaking. Because some people may speak to you and if you've never been exposed to someone that just speaks in a very commanding presence, it could intimidate you, right? Yeah, that's true. And so learning the different ways of people speaking and different ways of how people receive and interpret information, because I can go into one part of town and I can be like, please, sir, we please sit down? And they're going to look at me and, tell, and laugh at me and walk off. But if I tell them to sit the hell down and knock it off, they're going to sit the hell down and knock it off. But I have had effective communication. I do that same t- style in another part of town. Man, I'm, I'm all over the rudeness complaint spectrum. You know, and, and so it's just learning the effective ways of speaking and just by have, treat everyone with respect, go forward and be kind to everyone, but also being able to recognize like, okay, this speaking style isn't the right way to, to gain 
the de-escalation we need because de-escalation is a two-way street. Yeah. I have to I have to earn it from the other party. So, hey, and that's through effective communication. Speaking of de-escalation, though, um, do you guys subsidize any like yoga pro, any like type of yoga stuff? We have plenty of people that reach out to us wanting to offer yoga classes to our officers, and some officers take advantage of it. I mean, we we you know there's this yoga for police program out there, so there are programs out there for officers that. How want do you to increase do the reach of these programs? Because I think that that could also help with a lot of de-escalation and mental health. Oh, everyone's aware of it. Again, it comes back to time. Right? How much of my personal time is free when I start looking at all my other commitments to my family commitments, children's commitments, and other things like that? Everyone has their own way of handling stress. Sure. Yoga is not going to de-stress for everyone. No. Some people go fishing. Some people. I used to go country dancing. That I was actually, my release. I actually try to fish like once every couple of weeks or once every week. Yeah, just everyone de- has their own outlet for it. Myself as a pedicabber doing this and stuff. Um, so what, what what type of like calls that you get that you really don't want to do? Um. I don't enjoy family violence calls. Those are not fun. But no, I but do, like but calls, like not calls that you need, but calls that you think are just bullshit that you shouldn't even have to do. Oh, I think, I think a lot of the old property crime calls, like, hey, I came home, my house was burglarized a week ago. Like, we have a system, we have technology in place now that could take that report online, right? So, if we have like an old call that there's no active threat in progress. We should be able to follow that. You should be able to make that report online instead of waiting three, four, five, six hours for an officer to show up. I think it's it's we just don't have the staffing levels to really be as responsive. And then when you get there six hours later, the person is rightfully and justifiably very upset that it's taken all day long for you to get there to take the report. So it's those kinds of things. I, I think you know the the being realistic with this the resources we have. We really do have to kind of look at what is our prioritization. Stuff. So, do you think it's like at all possible to like deprioritize or stop responding to like stupid bullshit crimes that people don't really care about so much, and use that time instead to like train jujitsu or train while you're getting paid on the force? And this way, you're already you already paid to be at work anyway, and we just use that time and just go train. Yeah, yeah. I got no I mean, yeah, to that. Like, yeah. How, how do how does that get implemented? Right? I, like, I think it should be. You know, I, I think it should be. Quite frankly, I think we should be given time on duty to to work out and, and train on those programs. It's it's expected of us by this community, and therefore, I think it should be factored into it. Yeah, because there are a lot of like there are a lot of silly things that you have to do, like silly administrative things. I'm I'm sure, right? Or there's probably like a lot of like things that you got that people get pulled over or stopped by or get complaints on or whatever that most cops are like man i didn't want to become a cop to deal with like a noise complaint right yeah. you know like like if there's a way to like minimize the scope of responsibility of those complaints and say okay well um during these hours go train jujitsu and right. then you're still, you know, like, how, how does that get, how does that get sold and implemented to the public? But, but here's, like that's- so here's the thing. There are calls that I'm like, I don't want to do this, but I also understand the reason they're there in society. If you had a, if your neighbor constantly is like just blaring bass at three in the morning. Right. And to, I say, I'm not going to go to that because it's a BS call. It's just noise. It's not BS to that person on the receiving end. No, I understand that. And so man. we still have to be able to respond to stuff, even if I don't want to do it or I don't like it or I didn't get this profession to it. There's still a thing that holds the civilization of our society together. You still have to respond to those nuisance crimes. And that's and that's that's the part where what is the definitive answer? I don't think there's this clear black and white, oh, this is the line. I think it's all shades of gray. And that's why discretion is so important with officers is being able to utilize their discretion and their experience to make those calls on the scene. Because, like you said, th- there may be some things where you, you have a person that – is like me personally i think if someone's like some of these mental health calls right there's a person talking to himself on the corner i don't know if we need to go to that what what crime are they committing yeah I right agree. so yeah, yeah. so again my question is this is i think 
the calls we respond to should have some crime attached to it, right? It can't just be this, well, there's a person over here talking to himself in the corner. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know... I, I don't think that's something that we should go to because now you're opening up for problems, right? Um, so I, I think things like that, like if they're not doing anything wrong, we shouldn't have to like go yeah. and respond. To I them. also think that like if you're going to hire more officers, right, which you should, um, they should be doing like shift-based systems where if you have enough officers on the force, you could ideally maybe say, okay, well, this one group of officers from like 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock, you're going to go to 10th Planet and you're going to go do some jujitsu or you're going to do some MMA stuff. And then this other group is going to respond to calls. And then, you know, from 2 o'clock onward, you're going to respond to calls. And then th these guys can go and train from this period of time. Like, I think we, we, they got we, to figure out something to do. We used to do that. When we had the staffing, we used to do that. We used to do um, shift training at times when if we had enough coverage on our overlap days. We used to say, hey, you know what? This shift wants to go train or this shift wants to go practice this or that and if we their staffing was available and the coverage was there they were allowed to do right. it and I, but we don't have the staffing right. to do that anymore. but i think that we need the money for the staffing and i think once that staffing is in place you just say hey now we're going to mandate that they do do this during their time and this is what's happening because we got to make our cops better and this is so how we sell there, it to the community so there was a time and i don't know how long you've been you're, you're from austin no right? no i'm from new york i've been here okay. for like eight years though eight years. so i'm, I'm so do you I'm just spitballing here. It may have, so we had a, a time when I came here when I first got hired on. We used to have, so we have like all these various sectors around town, right? Yeah. And in the sectors, we had like these districts. We used to have like 12 districts per sector. So like for me, I had a tiny little sliver. I had like Elmont, Town Lake Circle, Tin and Ford, Riverside, Pleasant Valley. That was my little my little area that was my priority. Yeah. So I knew who all I knew who my citizens were. I knew who some of my repeat criminals were. Like I knew the area intimately well. I would eat in the area. You know it. That was real community policing. But because staffing got so bad, we went to this quadrant system to say, oh. Well, we have we meet the staffing needs because now we have the quadrants filled. So instead of trying to fill 12 spots, we're only filling four spots. And in doing that, you no longer have that dedicated time that where you're in between calls. You're just driving around getting to know the community. We need to go back to that staffing model where you have smaller little districts within that sector, and that's your area. And we there was a time where it was expected you took your calls there. If someone had to come and take a call in your district, it looked very poorly upon you. Because you're supposed to have district ownership, and you're supposed to know who your community members are. It's expected you knew your business community, you knew the people there, um, but we've gotten so far away from that, and now we're just so responsive to taking calls all day long, we've gotten away from that part of it. I, I really want to see us go back to that staffing model, where we you were assigned a tiny little area of town, and it was your response to you and every other shift. You all worked that. So the six of us that were all there from day shift to the evening shift to the night shift, we all communicated with each other what was going on in our tiny little little bubble. And, and, and we, you really developed a better rapport in that community because that community knew you and you knew them. I thoroughly agree with that. I think that that's a great idea. Um, so what's the money? I know that there's the, the Save Austin Now thing, right? Yes. To restore the funding. Oh, what's yeah. that money going towards? Yeah. So what that, it's basically trying to, first and foremost, is to increase the staffing to a minimum of the, the FBI standard, which was two officers per thousand people. Okay. It's not saying like that is the limit, but like that's, that's the low bar. That's not the high bar. Like that's the, that's the entry level minimum. And from there, try to grow it to what our overall needs are for what we want to do. The other part is looking at some of the stipend pay. Some of it is looking at uh, retention pay for officers. So basically, if you've we what we're wanting to do is if we want to promote the behavior of the officers we're expecting. So if you're eligible to receive a good conduct citation, 
meaning that you meet these elements and hey, the, you meet the department's high standard to receive a good conduct citation, we wanna make sure you get an incentive pay for that. Because we wanna reward the behavior we wanna see from our officers. We wanna highlight that and incentivize that. So, because why, why sh we should always promote the behavior we want and hold accountable the behavior we don't want. We're very good at holding accountable the behavior we don't want, but we do nothing on the end of, uh, of, of rewarding the behavior we, 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 we want to encourage and promote. And that, and that money would help go towards that? Towards like a little instead of pay and stipend. So you, I think you have to go like 10 years without any, you know, any type of uh, sustained complaints. Cool. I like that. Um, how much money do you guys spend on like actual weaponry for the police department? Or how much money in this new budget is going to go towards like wep towards like weaponry and like tactical gear and all that shit? I honestly have no idea. I don't handle the budget. So I honestly have no, I, I have no idea what that, the department That's an important thing does. to look into, right? Because I'm all for... Um, hiring more officers and um, increase and paying them more for training and doing all that stuff and yeah. paying them more and giving them incentives and getting a better relationship with the community and the police because like I said earlier man in the beginning you guys have been really nice to me as a pedicab driver yeah. you know uh, there's a lot of cops that train with the at 10th Planet that are like some of the coolest people ever right um, and I think more people should have like the viewpoint that I have right and I think it's good to put the work in to make that happen um, but what I don't want to do is spend money on like Giving you guys like tanks and more AK-47s and AR-15s and, and all that. We've like, never asked for any of that either. Though. Okay. So okay. I mean, the only thing we've ever wanted to make sure we kept is things like our our Bearcat vehicle that our SWAT team uses. You know that we've been able to use in high water rescues, like we've because we're a flooding community. So we've been able to utilize that cross reference on SWAT callouts. I was on one recently, actually during the beginning of COVID, where they were actually getting shot at, and the Bearcat that they were in was taking rounds from the suspect. Holy shit! And so when I was like, I was on the side of the building as rounds were being popped off, and we were able to take that person into custody with, with safely. They basically ran out of ammo and surrendered, but we were able to take them in custody peacefully. Um, so there, there's a need for some of that stuff, but again, it's for a very select specialized unit that responds to very select specialized calls. But overall, you know, we just want to make sure that we have working vehicles that have air conditioning that are have safe tires that actually don't have paint falling off anymore. We want our vehicles to look presentable and respectable. How many years? How many years do, does the department have their vehicles for? I have no idea. You don't know? It used to be we used to run it off of like like the usage of it. And I think that that's now changed. So I don't know what the new model right. is. Because like to, for like a, a department to update their vehicle every year annually is kind of like a waste of money, right? Yeah, and but you I, wouldn't want to do that. That that's that's inefficient for sure. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, there was it was more like a usage perform. Like you hit certain mileage and things like that, then it would be looked at or screened. But at the same time, you know, their community also has the expectation we're driving safe cars, right? You don't want us driving an old car and then. Do you guys have hire mechanics to like fix these cars and the stuff? The city like that has a mechanic unit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, they're good. They do a great job. I gotta say, our, our mechanic. What about hiring unit? more mechanics? Because like, I know a lot of people who, uh, with the ex-con stuff and recidivism, a lot of people who do time wind up are, wind up usually being like pretty good at fixing things and doing that, mechanical that stuff. Is, like that is a great conversation to have with the city council. Yeah, I'm member. saying like, that's, like, that seems like it would be a really good <laughs> yeah. idea, like to help with the recidivism <clears throat> stuff. Like hire more mechanics who um, are may have been like gone through the system. To help fix police cars, yeah. and then you could like help bridge that gap. Like that seems like I just thought of this idea. Like that seems like it could be a really good like middle. Yeah, I mean, road, you like, want to make sure you right? screen like, it, and make sure that they're not coming yeah, there. Right, like, like, you don't want like, some tamper. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't yeah. want someone there tampering with my brakes. Like, oh, oh look at this brake fail. Oh, like, that, like, I, so, you can see that. Yeah, right? so you want to make sure that, that the people you have are like really on the path of wanting to reform their lives. Then I think that'd be a great program for those that want to improve their lives, but those that are just like, oh, there's a great way for me to kill a cop and i can just yeah, you well but then you that. know who did that and then that guy goes to jail for life too well that doesn't help when you've lost 
That's true. So yeah, yeah. Their, but their I family think wouldn't be happy speaking, with that. If you want to do that, most people who are going to want to do stuff like that, yeah. you could also test the brakes and have somebody else test that. Right. right. Like, but what I'm saying is, is like, is like, I think it's a good program. We just got to make sure it's set up for success, right? You got to yeah. make sure that we're that it's screened for those people that have shown through their actions and behavior that they're on the path of, of being reformed. So yeah. I think these are good ideas. What, what, what's the deal with Lake Patrol? Because I know, like, you cut, they cut, like, a million dollars in, like, Lake yeah. Patrol. Like, what, what is Lake <clears throat> Patrol? What's the necess- the necessitative value of Lake Patrol in Austin, Texas? They, they do quite a bit. Um, first and foremost, water rescues. They're the only presence of emer- emergency vehicle that they're the only, like, active presence on our lakes from first responders. Like, they're out there all the time. So, if you have a person that goes over or things like that, they're usually the quickest to respond to there. But there's also, you gotta look at too, is how many dams do we have? We have a lot of dams. Yeah. Those dams, if they aren't going unpatrolled, they become vulnerable critical infrastructures. So, our lake unit is in a position to provide security and protection for those critical infrastructure systems that keep our community safe. But what so, do you guys, do, what do they do exactly? Like, what, what can, like if a flood occurs, what does Lake Patrol do if, like, a flood occurs or something like that happens? Yeah, I mean, they have access to certain vehicles that they can go help with uh, uh, with, with rescues and, and things like that. So okay. a lot of what they do, and they also do a lot of the, the dive team work, right? So if someone, say, threw a murder weapon over in the side of a thing, well, it has to be a police officer to get the, the weapon to, right. to secure for forensics. So, right, because there's no Lake Patrol, and, I, and I'm, like, a you know, ruthless gangbanger, and I'm, like, some hitman. Really easy for me to just to throw bodies in the water and no one's gonna get it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, so so they do a lot of recoveries and they do a lot of like forensic stuff. I mean, that's not the everyday norm, but when it happens, you want to make sure you have the right tools and resources in place. Um, but a lot of it really is that community policing, making sure that there aren't drunk boaters out there, right? Uh, I mean, that's really is like make sure that the lakes are safe because the lakes are are traffic ways like the road is. You know, we just yeah. got rid of our whole DWI unit. We disbanded them. And now there's a lot of concerns and questions about what happens now when you have increased drunk drivers, which I know is a concern for you on the pedicab industry because I've seen some of the wrecks that have happened. Yeah, there's some there's some crazy motherfuckers. Yes. Out there. But there's, also, there's also like drunk scootering, and you don't you can't oh, yeah. get a DWI on a scooter. Well, you, they choose not to prosecute for it. it the, if you read the way it is, if you're on a, a motorized conveyance while intoxicated, technically. So there's a technic, technically could you? Yes. But is it accepted? No. So. But that's crazy because I see people that are blackout drunk. Oh, this is like a few years ago where I was like really like worried about it, right? Yeah. Because um, I'm like, A, these people are cutting into my bottom line. And B, what you're doing is a safety hazard because you're freaking wasted driving on the wrong side of the road, operating a vehicle that goes 50 miles an hour, driving. On the highway. Yeah, well, that, some people, some idiots do take on the highway. One. But you're like putting the lives of like cars and people and everybody at risk by doing this. Like they got to not let people drive these scooters hammered. on the road i yeah, i agree um, they don't even need to be on the road i mean they were never meant or designed to be on the road cars were not meant and designed to be around uh the scooters like that there's the safety's not they don't even have like y'all required to have the little slow traffic thing on the back yeah y'all to be on the public road these, right these, and, and they don't these scooters are such a safety i saw some chick break her ankle literally fall off the broke her ankle i had to take her to the hospital because she fell off the scooter yeah. i'm like this these things are such a um I mean, I think they have use, right? I think There's you put them at bus stops them. and did yeah. stuff like that. Like, you'd be smart. But, like, just having a bunch of scooters all over downtown is really – first of all, not only is it an eyesore. Second of all, not only do people throw these things in the lake. <laughs> but, like, you're creating a safety hazard for everybody in the road with how these scooters are positioned. 
And then with the Ubers, like, you're letting Uber drivers drive all up and down Rainy Street and stuff like that. Like, that, dude. Well, I hear complaints from our disabled community a lot over it because, you know, those people that are wheelchair-bound, it, it, it does create a traversing problem for them. They can't just get out of the wheelchair and go move the scooter out of their way, right? And so, luckily, I think we have good people in this community that help them out. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people want to have independence on themselves. They don't want to have to ask someone or rely on someone for that. They want to have be able to just freely travel about their day you know, having to worry about yeah. it. And even with the Ubers, like, you should not be allowing Ubers to drive down Rainy Street Thursday through Saturday, <laughs> like, late at night because you're clogging up the roads. And because there's no regulation for who becomes an Uber driver, like, that's, like, the easiest way to get sex traffic because you could just see some drunk chick who doesn't know where the hell she is just going to some random vehicle. Like, the way they situate the Uber and Lyft stuff in Austin or just in general in Texas by, like, not having any rules for these people – this is a sex trafficker's wet dream. Like, they got to fix that. I think they have some some rules and regulations. I just think that they need to do a better job about saying, hey, you can't just drop off, pick up in the middle of an active street. Like, you, you need to go pull over into a parking lot. Yeah. So, like, sorry for the inconvenience. I can't get you exactly to your thing. You but you, may, you yeah. may have to go walk half a block. I agree. And it, but I think that for us it's a little different because we, we're smaller. We can maneuver better. We're not going <clears> super fast. Like we, You can we get fly. out of the roadway yeah, a little yeah, easier. We, and that's yeah. why we work so well a lot of times uh, with y'all guys because y'all you, always try to get out of the, the, the lane of travel. Whereas the cars, they're so big, they can't always just get out of the lane of travel. We try to be so accommodating to everybody. Yeah. And if I cut somebody off, it's because I know I'm making a right turn immediately, and I'm not even – I'm not fucking with you anyway because we have motors regardless, <laughs> right? So if anything, I'm helping with the flow of traffic, and I'm helping people get to their destination quick. But, yo, before we wrap up, like, how do you feel about Greg Starr and Mayor Adler? Um, not not a fan. <laughs> not, 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 not a fan. Um, I think that – they are are very much being very ignorant to the majority of this community. Uh, I think they are very acting upon self-serving interests. And, you know, I think that's one thing that you can see the issue they're having is because it is self-serving. What do you it's think not... these self-serving interests are, A? And B, um, I think that um, Greg Assar and Mayor Adler, contrary to what you might think, are probably the best thing that's ever happened to your department in the long term. And I'm going to tell you why after you answer I'm, that I'm question. I'm very curious as, as to how you got to that. I think they've been the worst thing to happen to us for Short the long term. term. No, long term, they're going to be great. You know why? I'm curious. Because you're going to – because, because um, over the long term, right, what, what happens when you um, defund a, a police department the way they defunded APD? It takes us years to recover. Okay, but what else happens? Like in the short Crime term? Crime goes up. Okay, what else happens? Um, response time. What happens to response time? Oh, it's, it's through the roof. No, it goes down. Like It, well, takes, it, goes, right. yeah. it takes longer to, to yeah, respond. Yeah, response yeah. time goes up. Um, crime goes up. Um, uh, fear and concerns over safety also go up. Yep. Right. So, what what kind of like a bargaining block does that give you guys, like four years from now? Yeah, but you have to remember though, for for our point of view, we're always trying to prevent the crimes, and so like well, I, I, I get know what that, you're, I but get I'm what saying, you're if saying, you're like a union head or you're a department yeah. head, and you want more money in your budget, like this is. This is like buying Bitcoin when it's four thousand dollars during COVID. It's like the same like equivalency that you. I mean, is the potential for it there? Yeah, but it, but I still stand by it. It's never should even get to that point. I mean, like, could there potentially be that? Yes, but to some degree too, though, right? You can't make it. We're already dealing with an affordability crisis in this town as it is, so you still have to be kind of reasonable. Yeah, but this is yeah. also a developer's wet dream too. Because the more crime that you get, the more all this shit happens, the more small businesses go under, the more these um, real estate conglomerates scoop up property at a, at a cheap discounted rate. And then when <laughs> things do get rebuilt, these guys make a fortune. Yeah, uh, you're not wrong. And I, I think it's that, that's why I just get so frustrated because, you know, people like myself and the colleagues that I work with, most of the colleagues I work with, they want nothing to do with politics. They really just want to just come here and do their job, keep this community safe. 
And, and for the longest time, they've been able to do that. They pride themselves in, in reducing crime. And now they're not really allowed or encouraged to do that um, without all these radical atta strings attached that, that jeopardize their, their, their well-being and their safety. And so I, 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 I hear, I know what you're saying. I don't disagree with you. That does it from a, um, from a monetary, from a monetary, from a, a long-term monetary standpoint, yeah. this is a police union reps wet dream. Cause you're going to get so like in four years when you see the, how disastrous all this shit is, you're going to get, there's going to be like, the public is going to be begging for an insane amount of money, but, which is way more so than what you're getting right now. Yes, but I, I will disagree to some extent because it's not just about money. It's also about we want to make sure we have high standards because a lot of officers here, because you're from New York, yeah. right? We don't have a lot of the issues that some of these major metropolitan areas yet, deal with. Yeah, We don't yet, but we don't want to lower our standards, and now I have to worry about the guy next to me. Is this guy on the take? Is this guy corrupt? Like, we don't want that here. So if that means not making the highest of whatever and knowing that I don't have to deal with the BS at work, of all the other things I got to deal with, I don't have to worry about the guy next to me, like, I'm okay with that. And most cops that I know right Dude, now are concerned I, about I, our lowered standards. Justin, I fully agree with you. Yeah. I think, like, from an every, you're speaking the language of, like, an everyday cop who works in the street. I'm just saying this from the perspective of somebody way, 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 way high yeah. up in the bureaucratic office. They might just be like, "Yo, this is a, an investment. I'm gonna get paid. We're, we're gonna get paid in four years with how because of how inept these people are." I can honestly say because because I do a lot with our with Maybe our association. Maybe this is my conspiratorial brain it, going off. A little right? bit, like, a little bit, because <laughs> you know, you know, I, I was, you know, I do a lot of work with the police association, and I and I can tell you like that those aren't the conversations we're having. The conversations we're having is what do we do about staffing quality? What do we do about you know how do we retain the officers? Our a lot of our focuses are like how do we retain what who we have because we do know that down the road as these officers retire and we're not have new flux coming in the that institutional knowledge of like hey here's the life lessons we've learned in this job and try to pass them down like the stuff that i'm telling you about how to communicate with people you know things to look out for like things that you can foresee coming that stuff goes away and you have these new bloods come in and they don't they won't understand that. So our concerns are more for the longevity of the reputation of our department to make sure we, we still can have high-quality officers here. Hey, you're speaking my language. I want the yeah. same thing, man. I think and, it's important. So that's really where our out, focus I'm just is throwing out. out. I'm throwing out a little curveball because it's just something I was kind of thinking about. I mean, right? if, like, I mean are, are you wrong? No, I mean, look at San Diego, right? San Diego did this several years ago. They ran off all their officers with all this radical stuff, and they ended up, I mean, now they're paying like, what is it, like $140,000 for an officer? So now they, 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 they raise their cost of living up for their own community just to try to entice people to come back. And now you got people coming here more for the money rather than for the passion. And that, that's bad. And so I'm just saying, like, yeah, that's great. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to make $140,000 a year. Don't get me wrong. Hey, let's do it. The community wants to give it to me to keep me around here. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. I'm not a fool. But at the same time, though, there are other things that we worry about besides just the but, monetary but, but, side but of it. You and I are both saying that that could happen. That's a concern that yeah. we should be thinking about. And that's kind of why I brought that up. Um, what do you think about this new chief? Um, he's not a new chief. He's been here for a while. Um, well, he's he's new in terms of his role. His as chief, role, yeah, yeah, as an interim, yeah. But but I mean, he's been here for a while. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for Chief Chacon. I've gotten to know him throughout my years here. I've got a lot of, a lot of respect for well, him. Well, you also got to say that too because you're, I don't have to say that. Oh, you don't. Right. I don't. No, like I said, okay. that I've, I've I've had some issues with some of our chiefs in the past, but but Chief Chacon, I think he truly has a good heart. I think he truly wants uh, some of the best interests here. I think he's. It's like everything. It's like even our own city manager. Like I like Spencer Cronk. I, I think he's. I think he's in a tough spot because you got to look at who his bosses are. It's council. Same thing with the chief. Anyone that sits in that role as the chief, their very hands are tied by the people that sit on the dais. 
And so, you know, I think that was one of Chief Manley's um, um, problems is he was never really allowed to fully fulfill the role of his job because he was so micromanaged by the dais that he created more problems. Yeah. And I think Chacon or whoever fills that seat, they're going to be in the same predicament that whoever sits on that dais is going to micromanage them to failure. So so Chacon's been uh, APD officer for 25 years, right? Oh, yeah. Why don't they just keep him as a chief forever? I, that's a great question. Because there's like 25 people apparently that want to be this new chief, and some of these people, it's like scary. You're like, I, I have like, you have, have these like homeland security, like guys and people that are like so federally inundated with with this national, you know, with, with this with this stuff that's happening. That's like <coughs> when you put somebody who was in charge of like homeland security or doing like federal task forces and stuff, like that's one step closer to federalizing our police force. Like, yeah, that's dangerous. Like you don't want that guy to be the chief. Like. Why don't we just keep Chacon, or why don't we just find somebody that's been an AP that either grew up in Austin or has been a veteran of the police force for a really long time to be the chief? Like that seems like the smartest logical I, move, I, right? I, I think it is too. But you also have to allow that person to to, to fulfill that role. I mean, that's why you hire them, right? It's yeah. You, they should, you shouldn't micromanage them because the micromanagement of it from council is what led to a lot of the systemic problems we're having now because it is from the system. I, I think you know. There are times that I do wish that, that our chiefs would be more publicly outspoken on things. You know, Chief Chacon's, at times I wish he would be more um, outspoken with some stuff. But at the same time, I also get where he's coming from. That's why I've never been so overtly critical of our executives that sit in that role. It's not because I'm afraid of them. It's because, like, I get it. I get what they're really – they're constrained because of the micromanagement taking place from the dais. And that's why I don't ever beat them up because I'm not a f- – I, I understand it. I get it. I no, get it. You I, know I, what I'm I totally understand. Yeah. Uh, so before we wrap up, how do people get involved in terms – like how can the community get involved in terms of who the chief is? Because that's a big deal, man. Yeah. So there's an open process. Well, they say it's an open process. Okay. Um, you know, they haven't really shown to really be fully on board with open processes. But you can technically um, – I think the city of Austin's got some program where you can log in and voice your opinion on the police chief process through them, but that's not transparent because that could just easily they they could only see what they want to see with the or or stuff, only right? allow in who they want to allow yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like the the city doesn't have the best track record of truly being open, honest, and transparent. So we're seeing that with the reimagining task force, right? So Notice, what's up with that? Yeah, tell me about the reimagining task force. Yeah, it's it, it's a group of anti police activists. I think they even had a crime commissioner on there at one point, and they voted them out because like, we can't have that view in here. So I, I think it's one of those things that it's made up of very like-minded echo chambers, and it doesn't bring a cross-section of the community there. It's only anti-police activists that are in there, and they're pushing some radical stuff that, quite frankly, it's it's Looney Tunes, man. Like what? Um, a couple of these radical ideas. Like one, they want to completely disarm every officer, which I think is is like you can't go out here with a gun. I, I'm sorry, that that's not going to happen. That's that is yeah, that's kind of crazy. Horrible idea. I do, I do think though that maybe like the taxpayers shouldn't subsidize certain weapons, but you should also be allowed to bring whatever weapon you got from home. Like that thought about that, right? Well, like, we used to, right? I mean, when I started here, we used to you had to provide your own firearm. And it was under Chief Acevedo that we then switched over to the firearm. I think so, yeah. you providing your own firearm is actually a good thing too because when it's your stuff, you're less likely to you're more conscious about utilizing your ammo too. Well, I I don't know about utilizing, but but you know we do try to take care and maintain our equipment. Yeah. So I but you know there's there's pros and cons to it. I'll be honest, there's pros right. and cons. I mean, like if 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 I end up having a defective item, I don't have to go out and spend my own money or something. Like I can like okay, poor for you know I can like trade it in and yeah, of course, one. of course. So there's pros and cons to it. Um, I you know I just I just really hope that our community 
if they want to get involved, like we had recently, we have a thing come up here on June 15th where you can meet the new cadets. I, I encourage you to go to that. You okay. know, it's, it's one of these things like let our cadets, let our future police officers hear from people that aren't these radical activists that, that want to reimagine them to, to, to their death. You know, let's bring the real community out there. The the nine hundred community of nine hundred thousand. Let's bring them out there. Yeah, because I don't know that I like the way they're reimagining things. Like, I think there's things that should be reimagined. Like, hey, um, yoga training. Hey, uh, ma mandate Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Maybe chill out with these weed requirements. It's a little outdated. That's how I would reimagine stuff. But the way they're doing it is like a public safety hazard. It, it, it not, is. You know? And only that, but you know, you look at, at what it's causing with our staffing issues too. I mean, it, event season's kicking up now. You yeah. know, like where are you going to get the officers to work these events to keep these events safe? I mean, there are other ripple. There are other consequences that were not thought out when they pulled the, did a knee jerk reaction on this, and we tried to warn them. I tried to warn them. Uh, President Cassidy tried. I mean, a lot of us tried to warn them that you don't fully understand the gravity of what you're going to do. You can't undo this as fast yeah. as you can turn it on. No, and then a bunch of you guys got rescued someone from a burning vehicle or something. Yeah. Like that. The council didn't say shit about that. Like, why would somebody in this, why would a sitting city council member, aside from Mackenzie Kelly, mm -hmm. not, like, pr offer praise when praise is due? Like, if you, like, one of the cardinal rules of managing people is to praise them when they're doing bad. If you're going to criticize people when they're doing bad, I, I meant praise when they're doing good, but if yeah. you're going to criticize when someone's doing bad, you got to praise them equally when they're doing good. And yes. that, like, that's yes. bad when you're when you're not like saying, "Oh, yo, these cops are heroes." Like, invite them to city hall. Like, go out, like, hang out with Mayor Adler. Like, you pulled a guy out of a burning vehicle. Yeah. Like, why aren't you congratulating that guy? Exactly, and that's that goes back crazy. to what you and I were talking about earlier. Like, we don't reward the behavior that we want to encourage and promote, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's not like those officers did it for glory or whatever. They did it because they care about this community. Like, they they care about their job. They're professionals. Like, that's why they risked their lives that yeah. day to go help this person out. And and that's the vast majority of all our officers. The only reason you know about that story or saw it is because a firefighter recorded it. If that recording was never there, this community never would have heard of that event. It would have it would have gone under with all the other hundreds of times officers have done her things like this not to diminish the greatness that these officers did but you don't hear these stories because a lot of them don't get captured by the community yeah it's 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 kind of ridiculous but um anyway justin thank you so much for coming hey on, Alex, like, thanks for having me um bro. i hope i think we covered everything that we wanted to cover right yeah, yeah. no i um, think it's I still think you should you should roll out playing regulators sometime I i'm think down that'd yeah it'd be epic i'm excited um i hope that we um so wait actually sorry i'm who do you like as the, the new chief? Like, what's are you allowed to say your pick? Are you comfortable? I I don't know any of them. The only person that I know personally is, is Chief Chacon. And like I said, I've I've got a good uh, relationship with, with Chief Chacon. Like I said, I, I think he really understands the issues that are going on in our community within our department. I mean, you're you gonna say like. Is a new chief going to understand all that? Probably not, but but Chacon does because he's yeah, been here like for a while. It's like having a city manager that, that was in Minnesota all the time, and now he's trying to manage Austin. Like it, it's yeah. it, it's you see what's happening. Yeah, well, so you got to keep it local. Well, again, it goes back to like I, I think Kronk's doing the best he's allowed to do, right? Because you know, yeah, again, it goes back to who's sitting on that dais. They're choosing to micromanage rather than entrust the people they've employed, and that's where you really see the problems. It's not so much the city manager or the chief. That's the problem. It's those that are sitting on the dais that are choosing to micromanage through the city manager and through the chief. That's where you're seeing the systemic failure coming from. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, Justin, how do we get a hold of you? Hey, hey, you can reach out to me. I'm all over Twitter at Real Justin Barry. You can go to uh, my campaign website. It's BarryForTexas.com. Um, like I said, feel free to reach out. All right, cool. Sounds good. You got Instagram? Uh, I do have Instagram. Uh, sitting at Real Justin Barry. Right. Um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, Justin, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Justin Berry, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate right. it.